We'll turn to Job chapter 1. Paul, we'll, we'll um, put the prayer right at the end after the message before the last song. Yeah. Is that okay? We'll do it that way. I'd like to turn to Job. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yokes of oxen, 500 female donkeys, in a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. Now his sons would go and feast in their houses each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, Thus Job did regularly, for Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand, and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person." Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Another also came and said, 
Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young men. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Later on, uh, Towards the end of this past week, I was going to preach on Ephesians, um, following on from where we left off last time, about unity and uh, how God's broken down that. But, uh, and then, of course, uh, early on in the week, there was the, that, the, the atrocity, that bombing in, in Manchester. And uh, I, I began to think of what was the right message to bring. And uh, I decided, my thoughts went to Job and uh, started looking into this. I was going to prepare this actually for the men's breakfast, prayer breakfast yesterday, but uh, it, it changed into a message really. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. It's a message very much with last week's, uh, this previous week's uh, bombing in mind and uh, the suffering and distress that that's caused. I do believe this passage actually raises a lot of questions, but it also provides some answers to the many questions that will be in people's minds, maybe in your mind, maybe in people that you meet, about this whole tragedy. A bit of the background to the story of Job, it's uh, spelt out there for us in that uh, chapter. Job is a, a very successful, he's very prosperous. He's a businessman. He's well respected, in fact, not just in the community, in the whole of that country and probably further afield as well. He's got a very large, happy family. He's a man known for his faith and his goodness and his integrity. And... Uh, He's doing well. It's great. Life's great for him. And uh, everything is smooth and plain sailing. And then, over a period of a few hours, disaster after disaster after disaster befalls him. And so in that very short period, and it literally was hours, he got the news, one after the other after the other, that, uh, well... He lost his home, he lost his business, he lost his wealth. Even worse than that, he lost all of his children. They were all killed in a great tragic disaster. And then finally, and we, we didn't read this, but in the next chapter then, we find that Satan attacked his, his health. And Job experienced excruciating illness and pain. And he was left devastated and in misery and in this awful pain. But also in this chapter, we're actually given an insight into why this happened. 
And, and it's an insight that Job himself wasn't privy to. He, he wasn't given this insight. Maybe right at the end, later on, it might have become clear to him. But uh, all through his suffering, he didn't know what was going on. And it's there for us. Let me just read again, verse 6 through to 8. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro into the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And that leads Satan then to challenge God, say, no, it's all right for Job. You've blessed him. Wonderful life he's having. Why doesn't he praise you? Anybody would praise you like that. But you take that away and see then whether he'll praise you. And God gives Satan permission to take those things away. So at the end of verse 12, we read, Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he instigated these things. So Job's sufferings arose from a challenge that Satan made <clears throat> to God. I've got three main points, and they're this. First of all, in this world, innocent People suffer. Simple. Innocent people suffer. Verse 8 says, Then the Lord said to Job, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? It, Job was innocent. He, he, there was no sin in him, if you like, that caused God to punish him. It certainly wasn't punishment. He was blameless. And it's a, fact, a sad fact, isn't it, that innocent people do suffer in the world. Often it's the ordinary person, the, just the vulnerable people, if you like, innocent people, who seem to suffer the most. Sometimes we think the wrong people don't suffer, but that's, that's life. That is just a bundle of life we're in. Good people, sadly, they're not exempt from suffering. That's common suffering, it's common to all. Later on, if you've got a Bible, you want to just look at Job 5, verse 7. As you know, if you're familiar with Job, you'll know that he had his comforters. These were friends of his, so-called. And uh, they didn't give comfort at all, some of them. They, they, they brought... Well, it's a saying, isn't it? Job's comforters. You're a Job's comforter. You're, 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 you're bringing more misery on me by what you say. And here's Eliphaz, one of Job's so-called friends with friends like this who needs enemies. It's summed up when he says in verse 7, he sums up Job, Job's life. Chapter 5, verse 7. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. That's actually one of the few words of sense that Eliphaz says. 
it's true. It, it, all it, you know, we have sayings, don't we? I'm trying to think of a similar saying, as sparks fly upward. That's what they do. Uh, there's an old saying, isn't there? As eggs is eggs, which I have no idea what it means, but it's not even good grammar. But it means it's certain, you know, as something is as certain as certain can be, this is what happens. Man will suffer. Man is born to suffering. There's unfairness in, in life. There's problems. Things we can't explain. There's, things happen in life. And there are not always easy answers. They're not always easy you know, solutions to the, to the problems that people have that we might have when it comes to this whole thing of suffering. It's interesting. People were asking the same questions in Jesus' day. And he addressed that. If you just turn to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. And uh, 1 to 5. Why do the innocent suffer? Luke 13, verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all, than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He didn't say in the same way. He's saying you will perish. You'll, you will die. Everybody's going to die. Unless you repent, you need to be right with God. Verse 4, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus, in response to this, he gives this, he gives this answer. It doesn't answer in one way, but it does in another. In the case of the worshippers who were murdered... Well, that was straightforward. Their suffering was due to the evil of one person, Pilate. Pilate's cruelty. That's just as in the case, isn't it, of the, of the, of the, uh, of the Manchester bomb and other terrorist atrocities. It's not just there, is it? It's brought, been brought home in Egypt. We've heard that of the Coptic Christians and on that bus. They were killed, and mainly children. And down the years, I mean, we, you just have to think of how many people have suffered as a result of the evil of others. That's the world we live in. Man's in inhumanity to man. But not all suffering is like that. The second case that Jesus gives, in verse 4, he, he mentions this Tower of Siloam that collapsed, killed many people. Blame couldn't be laid at anyone's door. And there are tragedies, aren't there? There are illnesses, there are natural disasters. Some you might be able to trace back to, you know, I, I suppose, obviously drought and famine could be traced back to the, not using the, um, um, God's resources as we could do. There's, there's always some link, isn't there, probably with, with man's just not being right with God. But in many places, many situations, it's often just innocent people who suffer from natural tragedy. But in both those cases, Jesus 
says that the people who died were neither more sinful nor more innocent than others. That wasn't an issue. That's not an issue in suffering. And that's true today. The innocent still suffer. The, the lesson that Jesus does bring out of that is that all of these things are a constant reminder of how fragile life is. Life is not certain. And what he says is actually anyone can be suddenly ushered into the presence of God. These things are a total, complete reminder of how fragile life is, that our life does not belong to us. God gives life and he takes away. And the most pressing matter for those who are alive is that they turn to God and find God in these things. That's what we should be praying for in this. We should be praying for comfort. We should be praying for help and praying for God to meet with people, but also that people would find Christ and turn to God. God uses these things to stir people up. I was reading about the, the SARS outbreak. If you remember that in the, in the early part of 2000, 2003, the SARS outbreak caused great panic in parts of the world. Um, and one Christian worker who worked among students in mainland China said that before the SARS outbreak, many of the students that she shared the gospel with were only interested in learning the facts about Christianity. It's just part of Western culture. They weren't interested, she says, in knowing Jesus as their Lord. And, and she says that there was a perceptible hardness in people's minds and hearts. But she says, then came the SARS outbreak in April of 2003. Schools were shut down, workplaces were shut down, places of entertainment were shut down. And the plans that students had made for their academic futures were all put on hold. And she says that routines of work, leisure were disrupted. And it made many people realise that the systems of education and government that they'd placed their trust in were not infallible. This is what she says. They were forced to realise that they needed to look to someone bigger than themselves. That life was unpredictable and temporal. And it made people think about what was beyond this life. And beyond what was merely material. She says the Lord has used and is using SARS to uproot the, the obstacle in the hearts of people. And he is softening and preparing hearts to receive his good news. God uses these things. It's very familiar to some about C.S. Lewis. He, he wrote in a book called The Problem of Pain. And he said these famous words. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts to us in our pain. In fact, he went so far as to call suffering God's megaphone. To rouse a deaf world. So yeah, God does in his mercy use these things. Because he is sovereign, he is Lord. And he is a loving God. So in this world, innocent people suffer. Secondly, we, we, we learn from Job 1. That Satan is behind suffering. Satan is behind suffering. It was uh, Satan who clearly initiated 
the suffering that that Job experienced. He was the source of it. In fact, we learn from Job that Satan can ruin health. He can cause natural disasters. He can take life. As with Job's children. So we must never underestimate the power that Satan has. But neither must we give him all the credit for everything. He gets enough credit as it is. So Satan is not the direct cause of all suffering. We can, I don't think it's right to say that. You know, if anything happens, well, it's, it's, it's Satan doing that. It's a devil. But the fact is that all suffering can be traced back to Satan. And that's true in, in, in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, it was there that they gave in to Satan's temptation. They rebelled against God and as a result of that the creation was ruined and sin entered the heart and as a result of that we have a suffering world. And Paul explains that, doesn't he, in Romans, Romans chapter 8 and verse 23 talks about even this lovely creation that we, we enjoy the beautiful world around us. Romans 8.23 says, Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And verse, if you could put verse 22 up as well, Paul, can you get that one up? Okay, well, it's okay. Let me, it says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labours with birth pangs together until now. There is a sense in all of creation has been affected by sin, by the fall. And by the, Satan's influence. And so innocent people suffer. We mustn't blame Satan for everything. I heard of a minister whose wife was buying clothes and she couldn't... She was always buying clothes. She was always buying clothes that they couldn't afford. She couldn't help herself. She couldn't resist impulsive buying. And one afternoon she came back with another expensive dress. And he said to her, but dear, we can't afford another new dress. And she said, but it looks so lovely. And I'll be able to wear it on Sunday. And, she, and he said, yeah, but we haven't the means to pay for it. I told you before that whenever you felt tempted to buy something, you were to say, get behind me, Satan. And she said, I did, I did. He said, well, what happened? Well, he said it was a perfect fit from behind as well. So, we can't blame everything on Satan, but actually he does have his input. And with Job, the temptation to discouragement actually did come from his wife. Remember, she she actually said to him, why don't you just curse God? Curse God. Job gave a very wise reply. Chapter 2, verse 10. Oh, let's read verse 9. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. I wouldn't dare say that to my wife, but I don't know. Shall, Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? Ooh, shall we not? Shall we accept good? And shall we not accept adversity? 
In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. In what he was saying, look, there's good times in life. You enjoy those from God. What about the hard times? Do you receive those from God? There's tough times in life. It's not that God just withdraws his hand and says, right, I'm going to teach you a lesson. Do you know? God gives and he takes away. Some of you will have heard of Simon Gilbord. He's a missionary in Burundi. And he writes this in his devotional book, Choose Life, and I'm going through it. It's an excellent daily devotional book. He says this. He says, there are some difficult and draining days when I just want to throw in the towel and give up my responsibilities. The grass is always greener elsewhere. So maybe another career will be easier, more fruitful or more fulfilling. You could be the same. And it could be your job or your marriage or whatever other role or responsibility you're tiring of. Hang on. Remember, God calls us to obedience, not convenience. He didn't say it would be easy, but he did promise to be with us every step of the way. Don't do anything rash. Pray it through. Seek counsel. Walk the path of obedience with him today. There are times when we get discouraged. There are times when things go hard and we think, oh, just, just, I just want to be away and off. And I don't want this responsibility. That's a temptation to be discouraged. Don't give in to that. Don't give in to that. And so we mustn't blame everything on the devil. But at the same time, we must never underestimate the influence that the devil has. He is the prince or the ruler of this world. He's a god of this age, the Bible says. We shouldn't be paranoid about him, but we should be alert. Alert to his power. And the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, they're mighty through God, aren't they? We, we're, to bit, we're to fight this spiritual battle we're in, not with the flesh, but with the spiritual warfare, the armour that God's given us. The next thing to notice, the third thing is this. God is in ultimate control. God is in ultimate control. Job chapter 1 verse 12. Chapter 1 verse 12. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. God set the boundaries of what Satan could and could not do. God was in ultimate control of all that Satan did. Chapter 2, verse 6. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, Job is in your hand, but spare his life. Friends, whatever happens in this world, whatever the suffering, God is always in control of all things at all times. Satan, Satan's power is by permission of God. Which means that there are not two ultimate powers in, in the world. There are not two ultimate powers. God is the ultimate power. 
And Job recognized that. I think we struggle with this. I don't know if you do, but you read this with me. Job chapter 1, verse 21. Some of these verses we've read. Job 1, 21. And Job said, Naked I came from my brother's mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. You see that? The Lord has taken away? No, that was Satan, wasn't it? Well, actually, no, Job was saying the Lord's taken away. He, he was recognizing that God was in control. He'd given that permission. Verse 22. And yet in all of this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. In other words, he rightly recognized the sovereignty of God. At the end of the book, the writer of Job, Job chapter 42 he recognized this. Job, right at the end, Job 42, that it's God who is ultimately in control. Job chapter 42, verse 11. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all those who had been in his acquaintance had been his acquaintance. Sorry, I've lost my place. Then all of his brothers and all of his sisters and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. The Lord. Not Satan. The Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. What they're doing is they're recognizing that God is in control. God gave permission to Satan to afflict Job. Elsewhere in scripture, that the, the word of God is very, very clear that God is in sovereign control of everything. Just look at Isaiah chapter 45. I'm going to read this actually. I'll read this from the NIV, uh, Bob, but you can put it up in... Uh, New King James. Isaiah 45, verses 5 to 7. I am the Lord, and there is no other apart from me. There is no God. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. The New King James says, I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. God is taking an enormous risk there. He's actually he's risking the fact that actually... We might accuse God of being the author of evil. But what he's doing is taking that risk so that we would see how great he is. How awesome he is. He is in control of everything that happens. There's nothing that happens that's beyond God's permission and control. Now God is loving. God is kind. God is gracious. God cannot sin. God cannot create evil. He cannot send evil as from himself. 
But in some way, and this is where we have to hold this intention, God overrules all evil such that he actually almost says, I'm the author of it. He isn't, but he says that, that he will bring, he even creates calamity. He sends these things. He doesn't authorize them, sorry, he isn't the author of them, but he permits them. So this is what this tells us. Whenever tragedy strikes, God is still on the throne. Satan's power is not decisive. He cannot act without God's permission. Friends, knowing that makes a huge difference to our lives. It makes a huge difference to how we live, how we face the future. It it means that I can have total confidence in in the future. Today, tomorrow, whatever happens, we can confidently trust in him. He'll guide every step. We haven't got time to turn to this now, but when the... You you don't need to turn to this. Let me just read something in in Acts chapter 4. When the disciples were threatened about telling about Jesus by the Jewish authorities. In Acts 4, verse 23 to 30 it is. They were threatened that if they told about Jesus, then their lives could be at stake, basically. They would be be punished for it. What do they do? They take comfort in the sovereignty of God. Here it says, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. We'll stop there. Do you get that? It's, it, what they're saying is, first of all, God is in control. God is suffering. Whatever happened to Jesus, all that suffering was by God's permission. Therefore, whatever man does, they, they cannot affect us. We're safe in Christ. They praised God's sovereignty. That's what sovereignty means. It means that nothing is outside of God's control. And he can and will work out all things for the good of those who love him. So, what this teaches is this. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Your life, if you're in Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That means that you have the victory. That means that whatever happens, your life is safe. It doesn't, doesn't matter what your health is, or your family, what happens with your family, my family. It doesn't, doesn't matter what happens with my business. or my. These things affect us deeply, and they can. And obviously they have an effect on people when those things touch us. 
But ultimately, God is God. And we are in him. And if there's one thing we know from God's word, it's that God wants us to have confidence in him. He wants us to know why we can have confidence in him. It's because he holds our lives and our future. I'd like us just to be quiet and I'd like us just to think about these things and then we're going to pray. I'm going to lead you in prayer. I'm going to give you time to pray for people who have been affected by these things. In the quietness, I'm going to invite you to pray and then we'll join in a, a prayer together after that. So let's just be quiet for a moment. If you put the first prayer up, Paul, thank you. Or the first thought up. So let's pray for those who lie crit critically injured in hospital or are separated from their family. Ask God to show mercy to them, to heal and to strengthen them. Let's be quiet and let's bring those prayers to God. Lord, thank you for the truth and reality of that, that you do prepare a table before us, a fellowship, wonderful fellowship, even in the presence of enemies. You anoint our head with oil, our cup runs over. Lord, I pray that goodness and mercy will follow each one today, throughout this week and for the rest of their lives, and that we would dwell in the house of the Lord, in your presence, knowing you, enjoying you obeying you. So help us in this, we pray. Part us with your blessing, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.